You're listening to Pastola Endocrine Podcast with your host, Dr. Sirapoon McKay. Hello and welcome back to Pestola Endocrine Podcast. In this second part of our thyroid episode, we will focus on hypothyroidism, the condition in which the thyroid gland is underactive and fails to make sufficient thyroid hormone. Symptoms in infant and children can be subtle and differ from those in adults. Joining me to discuss this topic is our expert, Dr. Tracy Patel. Dr. Patel is Medical Director of Endocrine at Texas Children's Hospital West Campus. She's also Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology and Metabolism at Texas Children's Hospital Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Patel. It's such a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Patel, our topic is, of course, your your, um, hypothyroidism. When should a physician suspect that a child might be hypothyroid? Um, So it really does depend on the age group. Um, In your infants, the signs and symptoms can actually be very subtle. Um, You may see a prolonged course of jaundice, some dry skin, perhaps a hoarse cry that the mother's reporting or poor feeding, even low muscle tone. Um, When you examine these patients, you can sometimes feel an unusually large fontanelle or even hypothermia, low body temperature on exam. But really these signs or symptoms are not unique to hypothyroidism and can be really, really difficult in a young infant. So by the time this full clinical picture evolved, it's several months have passed and some permanent damage has already occurred in terms of brain development. So in infants, actually, newborn screening has become a very, very important tool for all of us to help detect these cases early and start treatment early for their outcomes. Now, as you move on to childhood and adolescence, as pediatricians, you are actually more likely to have some classic signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism. Um, In younger children, the growth charts are a goldmine of information. Um, You will see slowing and stunting of the growth in the children. And you'll notice that year to year, they're just not growing and keeping up on their height percentiles. They may have some weight gain associated with that. Constipation is one of those symptoms I often hear from families. Beyond that, they may complain about feeling cold all the time or some dry skin or hair loss. And oftentimes they do complain about fatigue and maybe even a decline in school performance. Um, In terms of your exam, uh, bradycardia is something you may notice in severe cases. This heart rate's slower than you would expect. You might see some puffiness to the face. The deep tendon reflexes are often delayed. Um, And lastly, it actually does impact puberty. So if you're examining a child in that pubertal age group, you may see some delay in puberty. Um, And if you actually got a bone age, you would actually see that the growth plates are also delayed. Now, alternatively, in these long-standing severe cases of hypothyroidism that have gone undetected, we actually even see early puberty in some of our girls. But what really sets it apart is that although the pubertal development is there, their bonage is delayed, which is not what we really see in precocious puberty and really is a hallmark of hypothyroidism really instigating pubertal development. 
That's very interesting how the presentation varies so much with age. Could, could you talk to us about some of the causes of hypothyroidism? Um, so as pediatric endocrinologists, we often think of hypothyroidism as primary versus secondary. Primary being that the problem is in the gland itself versus secondary is where the problem is really in the stimulation of the thyroid gland because it is regulated by the hypothalamic pituitary axis. The other way that I like to look at it is really congenital versus acquired causes. So it's these subcategories. So if we start with congenital hypothyroidism, one important thing to really know is it is actually the most common, one of the most common preventable causes of mental retardation. So early diagnosis and treatment are very crucial. Um, it occurs in about one, to two, one in 2,000 to 4,000 infants. Um, the most common cause is usually thyroid dysgenesis, and that is where the thyroid gland did not form appropriately, and it accounts for about 85% of congenital cases. This includes instances where the gland either did not form at all, or there's hypoplasia, or even the gland is in an abnormal location or ectopic. These cases tend to be sporadic. You don't necessarily get a family history of thyroid problems, but there are some genes that are involved in the formation of the thyroid gland that have been implicated in causing this, such as TTF1 or FOXE1 or even PAX8. Now, beyond the thyroid gland not forming appropriately, you can also have instances where the thyroid gland is there, but there's a defect in the pathway of actually making the thyroid hormone. And this is referred to as dyshormonogenesis. And this could be either a problem in synthesizing your thyroid hormone or actually secreting it and tend to be autosomal recessive diseases as a whole. And then less commonly, you can actually in the congenital population find transient hypothyroidism. And this is due to a lot of maternal factors. Um, for example, a mom that has autoimmune thyroid disease can actually pass on antibodies that block TSH through the placenta onto the baby. And that results in a temporary hypothyroidism in the baby that usually clears in a few months as the maternal antibodies clear. In other cases, moms might be taking antithyroid medicines that cross the placenta, or there could be iodine deficiency or iodine excess in the mom that can also cause issues with hypothyroidism in a newborn. Um, and in very, very rare cases, we do see congenital hypothyroidism that is actually central in its nature, and it's due to abnormalities in the hypothalamus and pituitary area of the brain. Newborn screening in the babies, like I said, is huge in terms of diagnosing these babies. Um, there's usually, there's two major um, ways that different places will actually screen for hypothyroidism, and it really depends on the state. And so it's really important to know how your state screens for it. The first methodology is really looking at the TSH and measuring that. And then you do a follow-up T4 for those babies that actually have an elevated TSH. But with this method, you would actually miss most of your babies that had central hypothyroidism or in cases where that TSH elevation is delayed. For example, babies with low birth weight can have a delayed elevation in their TSH. Another issue that we've been seeing lately with this method is also this trend toward early discharge of moms and babies after delivery. Usually, we used to get this specimen right before discharge at about 48 hours or 72 hours, depending on how the mom delivered. 
But now some of these babies are going home like soon at the 24-hour mark. And so we may be capturing the natural postnatal surge of TSH. And so we get these false positive rates. There have been studies looking at that as like the utility of it and how many false positives are we getting. And there are a lot of studies that have been showing that even the 24-hour TSH surge normal TSH values in babies does not necessarily meet the cutoff of the newborn screen, which is really reassuring. Um, the other screening method that is used is actually measuring the T4 first, and then you get a follow-up TSH on those with a low T4 value. A lot of programs will just say the last, the lowest 10% of the T4 values for that day will all get a follow-up TSH. And this method allows us to pick up not only primary hypothyroidism, but also central hypothyroidism. Um, it also picks up your babies with TBG deficiency, but what it doesn't do is it misses, it misses the babies that the T4 is initially normal and may decline with time. For example, some cases of dyshormonogenesis may not necessarily have very low T4s at the very beginning, but that evolves as a process later. So there is a risk of false positives in both of them. Ideally, it would be nice if we could get um, a T4 and a TSH on all of these babies using the actual paper blood spots that we get on the filter paper. But I will say that newborn screening is huge for these congenital etiologies of hypothyroidism because it's clinically just very difficult to pick up as fast as we really need from a clinical perspective. Now in children and adolescents, if we look at causes, it changes. The most common cause is actually autoimmune hypothyroidism, which is also known as chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis or Hashimoto's. This condition is actually more common in females compared to males and also more common in your adolescent group versus your pre-adolescent group. And it is actually the most common autoimmune disease of all autoimmune diseases. So patients that have other autoimmune conditions like type 1 diabetes are also at an increased risk. Um, there are other genetic conditions we need to think about, particularly Down syndrome and Turner syndrome, where the patients are also at increased risk for autoimmune thyroiditis. And these patients, when you check their labs, actually have antithyroid antibodies, and that is what is actually causing the damage to the thyroid gland. And the presence of these antibodies alone, however, does not need treatment. In fact, there's a lot of the population that carries these antibodies, but many of them actually never develop thyroid disease. So it is very, very important to actually check thyroid studies and the exam to really decide if your patient has hypothyroidism that warrants treatment. As you talk about the labs, I think about subclinical hypothyroidism and, and the bit of controversy we have over when to treat and how the lab should be done. Could you talk a little bit more about testing? Of course, this would be the, um, perhaps um, not the newborn, but the child that's a bit older. Right. So I generally like to get both the TSH and the free T4 when I do testing. Um, I know a lot of screening involves just a TSH alone, but I don't feel the TSH alone gives a great clinical picture to anybody. Um, and the T4 level is very valuable. Um, in terms of subclinical hypothyroidism, what you are seeing is a TSH concentration that is actually above the upper limit of normal range, but the free T4 is still within 
normal range. So compared to overt hypothyroidism, where both where the TSH is elevated, but the free the free T4 is actually low. Now, the data on the natural history of patients with subclinical hypothyroidism is actually very limited. So we use a lot of adult studies and kind of extrapolate from that to help guide us. Um, overall, most of the studies show that 30 to 50% of these patients will actually eventually revert back to euthyroidism with time. And there's very low rates of progression to actual hypothyroidism. Um, some of the factors that help you determine that risk is whether the TSH level is above 10 to 12. Those are more likely to evolve into overt hypothyroidism. The presence of anti-thyroid antibodies that suggest that there is an autoimmune predisposition and component to their disease and a, the presence of a goiter on exam. So that becomes very important. So on the other hand, if you're antibody negative, your TSH is less than 10, you're actually more likely to normalize with time. Um, but we are seeing more and more pediatricians these days checking thyroid function, especially with the obesity epidemic. And you have this patient come in that has weight gain and the first thought is, okay, let me check their thyroid. And so it's really important for us when the patient comes in to really look at the labs, look at our patient, look at those growth charts to understand who actually needs treatment and who actually needs more counseling. Um, it's really challenging as an endocrinologist because many of these families really come to us in hopes that they found a cause for their child's weight gain. And it's always easier to take a pill than it is to tackle diet and lifestyle and everything that comes with that. Um, but we do have good data that shows both children and adults that are overweight and obese tend to actually have higher TSH levels, but it is not actually causative in terms of their weight gain. It's actually the result of the weight gain. Um, so it can be really difficult to explain that to families. So some of the things I do is I, I, look, I actually review the growth charts with the family. And I explain to them that in real true hypothyroidism, growth is slowed. And so we go over that growth chart to show what their child's growth was, not their waking, but their actual growth and show them that in kids, most of the time with exogenous obesity, you have normal growth and even accelerated growth at times. So you have these children that are overweight, but they're also quite tall and growing very well. And so that really helps make the point and drill it home that, hey, I don't think the thyroid is causing this weight gain because otherwise I would have seen stunting of the growth as well. The other thing I've noticed is that the children that actually had weight gain due to thyroid, they don't tend to report this increased hunger or polyphagia. Their weight gain is purely because their metabolism went down a little bit. And so it's like this modest weight gain that happened in this short period preceding the visit but not necessarily a very long-standing severe weight gain that's associated with polyphagia. Now, in terms of treating, um, again, TSH greater than 10 is usually the guideline that most endocrinologists will use. And again, derived from adults, benefit in children, not quite clear. Um, I do tend to treat if the TSH is greater than 10, especially if the antibodies are positive. Um, and if there is a goiter for sure, because there is proof that if you have a TSH greater than 10 in a goiter, that, that treatment can actually help reduce the size of that goiter. That's very helpful. And it sounds like you're 
have very long um, um, conversations with your family. And that reassurance is so important. Um, when you have a child, you're suspecting a disease in as a, as a parent, right? Absolutely. Um, now, I'm, I'm wondering, um, uh, one of the hallmarks of pediatrics is we deal with such a huge change in growth from the infant to the young adult. How do you follow a child with hypothyroidism and dose the hormones um, across this huge age spectrum? Um, so we, we do use levothyroxine treatment. So I, that is the treatment of choice for hypothyroidism. Um, it generally, it is used as a pill. Um, and re regardless of age, we have overall tended to use pills. My infants will crush it up and mix it up with a small amount of water. Um, in the older kids, they start learning to chew it or swallow it eventually. In terms of dosing, there's actually really good guidelines out there. Um, the younger infants tend to require a higher dose per kilo of body weight in those first few months, but then their metabolism will change and that requirement actually goes down. So in my Newborn infants, um, it's usually about 10 to 15 micrograms per kilo at the beginning, and they actually naturally outgrow it. Their requirement goes down to maybe five or five to seven micrograms per kilo, but you're not really having to change the dose because they're growing, and so they're growing into that dose appropriately. Um, in terms of raw dose, um, for the first few weeks, I generally give about 50 micrograms for the couple of weeks at the beginning just to allow them that catch up because they have been hypothyroided and we know that it's so important for their cognitive development. And eventually they usually taper down into a dose of about 37 and a half. So we end up using either the 75 microgram tablet and cutting it in half or the 25 microgram tablet and doing one and a half of that. Now, as you get older in the toddler years, the requirement is closer to four to six micrograms per kilo. And then in the childhood years, it's about three to five. And then once you're over 10, it's usually about two to four micrograms per kilo is what the recommendation is. I'll be honest, once a child has actually started on treatment, that may help me start their treatment, but then their labs really help me dictate how to change that dose. Um, the younger kids I'm monitoring much more closely, the babies, I'm having them come back every two to three months into clinic and getting repeat thyroid studies to make sure one, that the dose is effective and two, that they're compliant. Um, and then the labs really help tell me when the child is outgrowing the dose and the next dose adjustment needs to be made. Um, in the growing children, probably about every four months, although it gets stretched to six every once in a while, but then once they're post-pubertal and in the adolescent years, I, I think spacing them to about twice a year, letting them stay in school and not having to come to the doctor's office is pretty sufficient in helping determine dose changes that they need. Um, in terms of forms, I, I know I mentioned pills and they've been like our classic form. I remember even in my training, always being told not to use the suspension. It falls out of suspension. The dosing is unreliable. Um, but I will say I recently used um, the new Tyrosint a couple of times in my patients. Um, so they have two forms. One is like a gel capsule and the other one is actually a solution in a liquid form of levothyroxine. And they boast that they are gluten-free and really don't have any of these additional additives and fillers that a lot of our tablets used. And so they actually 
claim that they have better absorption in our patients with GI processes. And as I mentioned, autoimmune thyroiditis tends to occur more in patients that have other autoimmune diseases, and that includes things like inflammatory bowel disease and celiac. So I've had really good luck recently with a patient with celiac that just wasn't tolerating Levo. And so we use tyrosine gel caps, and that seems to be working better in terms of just tolerability. Um, I think it's also a game changer in terms of the solution for our babies and maybe looking at if that's easier for families to use for those that don't want to crush up the tablet and do all of this pill cutting. Um, it actually comes in these prepackaged ampules. And so you just squeeze it directly into the mouth or onto a spoon. Um, you can dilute it a little bit if you want to, but it is a new option that's available for us that was much needed. I think the other major thing that I like to advise when I'm teaching about just thyroid and thyroid um, disease and management is looking at a good medical history. I, I think a lot of medicines can actually interfere with thyroid function. So I think that history is, is very important. Um, some classic ones are like lithium or amiodarone or interferon gamma. Um, but a lot of these new psych medicines are also causing both um, problems with T4 secretion, but also with TSH. So you get this almost central hypothyroidism picture in these patients. And a lot of them clinically, it's not relevant. They're not feeling anything. It was just caught on routine labs. But we have, if it's longstanding issues, you may have patients that actually do feel better with treatment of their central hypothyroidism. I think one of the classic ones I've noticed is trileptol. I have a lot of patients that have been prescribed that. It seems to be very popular in psychiatry as a drug. Um, so just getting a good medical history. If you don't have antibodies, but you have abnormal thyroid studies, is really looking at what else is this patient taking? What else could explain these labs and looking at that? And the other big one is if you have any reason to suspect adrenal insufficiency, whether it's Addison's in a patient with autoimmune disease or central adrenal insufficiency because you have central hypothyroidism, it is really, really important to actually evaluate for that and treat that first before you start the thyroid hormone replacement. Otherwise, you can precipitate an adrenal crisis. Um, so always remember the cortisol axis when you're looking at thyroid disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. It was my pleasure. You're listening to Pastola Endocrine Podcast. Pastola, pediatric endocrinologist of Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. For more information about Pastola, please visit pastola.org.